Welcome to the Production Talk podcast with me, Jan of mixartist.com.au. In this podcast series, we celebrate the modern way of producing music. We want to talk about all things related to songwriting, recording at home and music production. So if you produce your music at home, this is the place to be. Please subscribe and recommend this podcast to all your friends. This is the Production Talk Podcast, episode 44. Welcome back to another episode of the Production Talk Podcast. Uh, before we start, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of uh, the country that this conversation, this interview is recorded on, the Arakwal people of the Banjalong Nation, and I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So, with me today is Mr. Marcos Marcosi, um, who just showed me an amazing project that I definitely want to talk about today. But before we get into that exciting project, I'd like to learn more about you and your musical career. So maybe just uh, introduce yourself and tell us where you're from and what your musical background is. Great. Thanks for having me, Jan. This is an honor, I must say. You're most welcome. Um, my name is yeah Marcos Mikosi. Um, I'm a musician. I came. I'm from Argentina, Buenos Aires, Argentina, and I came to Australia four years ago, uh, wanting to be uh, a musician. Right? I was studying architecture in Argentina, so it's a different, different life. Very different, yeah. Although it, it kind of applied. Mm. The six years of architecture in this project. Yeah, we'll see that good. later towards the end, I guess, when the circle closes. Exactly. But uh, how old were you when you first picked up an instrument, when you first started <clears throat> learning? I think I was, um, I was 13 years old. I played drums. I started with drums. Yeah, I went to this kind of like after hours little school where you would paint, you would um, make music, and you would spend each day doing something different. So I played bass and drums and paint there, which was great. I think that's where, where it all started. Um, and, and which instruments uh, do you focus on these days? These days, my main focus is on synthesizers, guitar and bass. Guitar and bass. Yes. And uh, you're involved in a band. Yes. Can you tell us more about that project, please? Yeah, so at the moment I'm involved in, in a couple of bands. Uh, one band is called Holiday. It's based in Tasmania which is a band that focuses a lot on, on live performances. On the other hand, I'm also a part of Yellow the Sun, which is, um, on the other hand, a band that doesn't play live, but it's just like a studio project. And then at the same time, I'm, I'm, I make my own music, which will be released soon. Fantastic. And uh, are there any releases out at this stage? At this stage, yes. There's one single released with Holiday, and there's... Three songs released with Yellow the Sun and one more to be released, I think, next week, which is really exciting. Oh, wow. Yes. Look, um, please pass me all the links. I'd like to put them all into the show notes. So at the of end course. of the episode, please move on to the show notes and click and have a listen. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, can you describe the musical genres that you're involved with and the feel and vibe? Yes. Well, the band Holiday, it's, um, it's a mixture of... Um, different styles because it's Meg Hitchcock who she's from London um, Jesse Hicks who's from Tasmania and myself so I come from a very um, 
experimental, I would say, um, genre. I like using a lot of effects. I like non-conventional sounds in a way. Um, but being in these bands forced me to have to kind of find a middle ground between, you know, these bands and on what I want to do. So mm -hmm. that um that combination, it's always different and it's really, really exciting. So the one holiday is more rock orientated, while Yellow the Sun is more psychedelic rock orientated and electronic. Cool. Wow. That should keep you pretty busy with uh, that many projects going on at the same time. A hundred percent. Yeah, cool. It's fun. Um, have you got any upcoming live shows? Let me think. Well, at the same time, I'm a DJ with my partner. We're called In the Flowers. and Oh, another project. Yeah, another project. <laughs> wow. Um, and we are playing... Let me think. No, no live shows in the future. Okay, well, that's fine. So yes. if you uh, have any shows coming, please drop a note. I'll throw it into the Production Talk Facebook community so that uh, listeners can get a notice when, when you have shows coming up. Amazing. Look, um, I think it's, it's really time that we quickly talk about how we met each other, what the environment is for full clarity here. 100%. So you're currently studying. Yes. Uh, tell us more about that. I'm studying the Bachelor of Audio at SAE in Byron Bay. And that's where we met because I work there. So we have some kind of a, a work relationship, I would say, for full disclosure here. Yes. Um, and, you know, I've, I've known you for a while. Um, you're definitely a very talented producer. Thank and you. Uh, I would just quickly talk, like to talk about how you produce your own music, if that's okay. So yes. when, you, when you work on your projects, do you work by yourself or do you work with external engineers? I usually work on, on my own. I remember the first time I recorded an album with my Argentinian band. Um, it was called Incorp Sanctis, and it was an experimental rock band, psychedelic rock band. And back then, we didn't have money, you know, to, to pay for an engineer or anything. And we didn't even have much money for instruments at all. So in order to get these crazy sounds, we, we had to do it all ourselves. So that, that album is one of the favorite albums I've done so far, it was just such a great experience. Uh, we had one condenser mic to record the drums. That yeah, was right. It. Mm. And then um, that was pretty much it. And I remember getting a call from them uh, for me to come and record synthesizers. But I had no synthesizer. I just had like an old Casio keyboard. So I put the output of the Casio into the guitar pedals of the guitar player. And that's how we got all these, you know, crazy sounds like Yeah, synthesizers and phasers and and other modulation uh, sounds that yeah, it just blended so well with this genre, and mm. the album was done in in the living room. Amazing, amazing. Um, obviously, I want to have the the link for the show notes if that's available. hundred percent. Yeah. And uh, t tell me more about the later stages, like mixing and mastering. Did you do all of that yourself as well? Um, definitely mixing. Yes. Uh, sorry, are you talking about the band in Argentina? Yes. Uh, we did the pre-production and pre-mixing, and then we gave it to a friend of ours who did the mixing and mastering. Mm, okay. um, yeah, so I feel like that attitude towards audio engineering, which I didn't even know what it was back then, uh, stayed with me you know, mm. for all this time. I see. I see. Like a can-do can attitude, I guess. Like, doesn't matter. Yeah. And when you produce your own music today... 
How do you manage to be an engineer and a performer at the same time? That's two completely different mindsets. Is this something that falls naturally to you or do you sometimes find that to be challenging? It is definitely challenging. I still mm. struggle with it today. Um, but definitely it's important to understand that it is two different jobs and that they can't be done at the same time. Mm. You know, you have to put your producer hat at some times and then you have to make it very evident that the job is done and then we're moving into, you know, a performing um, hat or whatever hat mm -hmm. you, you want to use at the moment. But yeah, it has to be different. Okay, so you try to separate those jobs as in, you know, you do the recordings in the morning and then the editing in the afternoon. Is is that how you would practically do that? or Yeah, or even days. Even mm. depends, really depends on the project because at the moment, as I don't have my own studio, I usually, yeah, it, it keeps evolving all the time and changing. Yeah, 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 okay. But if I would have the band with me, I would be like, all right, today we were recording. I'm the engineer. And then the next day, you all guys, uh, you know, you do your thing. I'll stay here and I'll mix it to a point. Mm. And then we'll meet again and okay. we'll, you know, yeah. produce from there. Yep. All right. And and when you track yourself, do you find yourself in situations where you play the bass and also record yourself? A hundred percent, yes. And that's where, you know, the friction point sits, I guess. You know, yeah. how do you manage that? Um, see, I, I didn't have any real friction. Yeah, actually, yes. I guess the frustration comes when you want something now. You have an idea mm. now and and something happens and you you have to put, you know, take that hat off and put the producer hat or the mm. engineer hat on and something is lost in all that. So I guess the the aim is to have a studio set up that is really easy to use and fast, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be practical. Yeah? It has that, to be that's, practical. That's really important, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Um What do you do to get into the right mindset for, you know, mind-blowing performances when you really need to groove like crazy on the bass? It's not something that you can just snap into straight away. How how do you get into into the musical flow where just, you know, the best takes happen? Yes, it's interesting. Um, to start with, I, I meditate every day that I think it's it's very important for me because if I don't meditate one day, I, I can I can feel it and... That's, I think, where it starts, early in the morning, as soon as I wake up. And from there, I usually like to listen to music before recording, mm. to get inspired, get mm. get a feeling, and then try to chase that feeling with uh, my own performance. Yeah. That's 100% it. And then I literally like to go into my uh, balcony. I have a really nice view outside of my house. Uh, it's a really long view. I always wanted a a long view. I used to live in an apartment and the view was five meters yeah, right. and there was another building. <clears throat> Do you want space? I needed space. And also, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a loner when, when doing all these things. I, if, Yeah, exactly. So if I want to be in that performance mindset, I usually would like to, to be alone and and tap into some kind of energy that could come from listening to music Or could come from just you know staring at this long landscape and quietness, I guess. Mm, okay, and that calms your mind, and then from there, good takes seem yeah. to appear. I feel like I have mm. to to believe it before I I can do it. Mm. I can't force it. You you can't really force it. I mean, of course, you find yourself sometimes having to force it because there's deadlines. Yeah, and I guess yeah, you get better at what you do, and you can force something, and it's 
is something you're happy with. But if you want that, you know, that extra mile, that feeling recording into something, mm. it's the feeling is needed. It translates okay. somehow. Cool. Okay, good. Well, thank you for sharing. I would like to sort of gradually steer towards the project that you just completed, which we've spoken about before, and I probably need to explain what's going on. What's the name of the project? What's the name of the project? It's um, it's like a big, it's like an umbrella project that has inside multiple projects, I would say. Mm, okay. So the umbrella project is um, simulated environments because it's kind of you're somewhere, but you're not really there in a way. Okay, well, that doesn't make sense yet. So we have to break this into little sections and take a step to step. So you created sounds in a different way. Can you yes. explain? So... I use a Neve Custom 75 recording console and I use it, some would say, the wrong way to create a sound that um, it's not ideal. It's a feedback loop. And then I found a way to manipulate that sound and make it sound uh, like a sound we're familiar with. And in that process, I, I created an instrument that I can perform with. So you're saying you, you turned... In an analog Neve console into an instrument. Exactly. Through using feedback. So how practically, how do you do that practically? How do I do the feedback? Yes. So I route the output of a signal into its same input. So I use um, Pro Tools for that. I send the signal to Pro Tools and then I send it back into the same channel in the Neve, which creates, creates a loop. And that creates a really annoying sound. <laughs> I see. So that's a feedback loop, and that's usually what everybody tries to avoid. 100%. If you've been in a studio before, you know, most people have accidentally patched something, it caused feedback, and nobody liked that. It's exactly. what engineers try very hard not to do because it makes us engineers look bad in front of clients. So we don't exactly. want to do that. We don't want to have that in live sound either when no. you know, monitors and microphones start to feedback. And you actually took it electronically and patched it back into itself. So yes. can you describe how it sounds when a channel module feeds back? It sounds like um, a painful sword into your ears. <laughs> how <laughs> could you describe it? It's a piercing sound. Yeah? It's a piercing sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's thin and thick at the same time. I, I don't think we're meant to listen to that for, mm. for too long. Okay. But then, yeah. All right. And then I noticed that when I looked at the console yesterday, you had labels on the channel strips and usually where we place labels like kick and snare and so on, you had labels that actually identified a musical note. Exactly. Explain. Well, um, so this technique of using feedback loops is called no input mixing. And it's interesting and I've seen a lot of people do it and you can get these feedback loops and then crazy sounds can start to happen. But what I thought it was interesting about my project is the process of, you know, we come from a mindset of musical scales, but then we focus on those notes that are not a C, not a D, not a D sharp, those in-between noises that they're nothing at the moment and no one looks at them. And we explore them, but then we bring them back to what we can understand. So in a way, we're, we're at the same point of, you know, where we started. We're playing mm -hmm. a C, C major mm. chord in a way. But there's a whole process that happened in between that. And I yeah. think 
that's um, the heart of the, the project in a way. So how did you get a channel module that feeds back through, you know, mm -hmm. connecting the output back to the input? How do you get that to, to sound as a C? How do you get a pitch out of that? You know, it's, it's just a squealing noise at this stage. It is. Um, so I realized that by engaging different um, parts of the console, that sound would change, right? So it was a process of unlearning what we have learned. So if I, for example, engage the EQ on that channel, suddenly it acts as an octave pedal and it goes an octave higher. And suddenly the gain pod is a fine-tuning pod. And then if you engage the low cut button, it acts as a tremolo, which is crazy. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> it, 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 act, it works like That's that. That's definitely not what anybody intended uh, no. when this console was built. Look, you know, I, I know a little bit about the inner workings of this console as I was deeply involved in the build of it. Exactly. Nobody foresaw these things happening ever. So It's exciting. Let's say, you know, you do patch it back into itself, you hear a sound, you, I believe you had a, a, a tuner going, is that correct? Yes. So, so what if the tuner now shows it's a bit flat or something? Well, how do you change that? How do you now go in and tune that? Well, a couple of cents. I know that if on the AQ section, if you moved, <laughs> I, I got to, I got very, very intimate with the machine to a point where I know exactly what port I need to move in order to do a, a fine-tuning to a certain degree. And if I want to go from a C to an A, I know that this other port is like a faster fine-tuning, right? Yeah, right. So um, I know if I change the frequency on the high-frequencies EQ, that is going to, yeah, pretty much allow me to fine-tune. I don't know if I explained it properly. So by engaging it and playing with this, you experimented and noticed that the overall pitch went up and or down a couple yeah, of cents. And exactly. I think it comes from, you know, when you first see a guitar, mm. it's completely alien. Like, how can you, it's, how can you explain someone how it is, how it works? But we're somehow familiar with it because of the amount of time we spend with it and, you know, yeah. generations spend time with it. This is the same. In the end, it's, it's an instrument. It's just it doesn't work in the way we were taught things work. So if you spend enough time with it and become familiar with its patterns and behaviors, then it just becomes as natural as playing a guitar, I guess. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and how many different channel modules did you use and how many different pitches did you get? I use two octaves. And I usually use only the white keys of a keyboard. I see. So that's no, eight, eight uh, notes? Yes. Times two octaves, so... 16? Exactly. Mm. And no sharps or um, flats. Okay. Just for, um, so it's easier to, to perform with it. But okay, but by patching the outputs back into the inputs, they all sound at the same time. And if I imagine, you know, all the 10 keys played of two octaves at the same time, that's not what we want to hear. That's not a pleasing sound. So how did you then manage to play just specific notes? Um, so I realized that Initially, I wanted to use the faders to perform, but then mm. even if I had all the faders down, the the sound still I could still hear the sound of all of them at the same time. So I had to find another way of of doing that. And I realized that if I had all the faders up, but I was monitoring the aux send three, for example, and then I had all the aux three sends to a certain level, and then only by activating it, 
um, the sound would come out. But then if I had nothing pressed, no sound would come out. Do you understand? Uh, I see. So in other words, you weren't actually listening through the normal signal flow of a console, from the fader to the mixing bus to you know the left-right mix to the speakers. Instead, you just used an aux end. Yes. And that was connected to the speakers. And you know, the way this console is built, it's got an on-off switch for the aux. Exactly. Which yeah. would be a dream, actually, if uh, someone could change that to a latch mode. Is it latch? When you <sighs> just press and then it's send and then when you take it out, it's not... I think you mean moment, momentary. Momentary. Latch is what it is at the moment. Exactly. So you press it once, it stays on until you press it again. You want exactly. momentary. I would so. love that. <laughs> How good are you in writing software? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Look, uh, the software engineer who programmed the software for this console, um, I know him. He's, uh, his name is Greg. He lives in Poland. He worked for Dolby Laboratories after programming the software for the Custom Series 75. Amazing. The, I'm still in touch with him every so often, but I don't think he's actively involved in the software development these days. So Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry to... To uh, disappoint here, I don't think that's a feature you will see anytime soon. Damn, I'll have mm. to I'll have to learn how to write softwares. <laughs> that's the next step. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so all right, I, I can visualize this now. You've got you know twelve channel modules in front of you, and now you go to the aux and on-off switches. Yes, and that allows you to now activate certain notes and play, let's say, you know, three notes for a major chord or something like that. Exactly. Or you could even play, you know, a melody if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. And then it comes out of a mono accent. Yes. But that's not where you stopped. You no. went further, yeah? So I believe at this stage, you know, the idea of, um, what is it called again? Uh, in, no, no input mixer? Is that No input called? mixing, yeah. No input mixing. What was your inspiration to get to this point, who inspired you to, to, to build, you know, a no-input mixer using the Neve console? Well, I guess the first one was uh, mm. Philippe Chambin with his project Squeal, where he explores this already. Yes, that is a big project and yes. a big shout out to my to our mate Phil. Yes. I've known Phil for a long time. He was actually my best mate at, at my wedding. That's how, how close I know him and uh, how, how well I know him. And I'm definitely going to put uh, a link to his project into the show notes. It's crazy <laughs> stuff. Uh, definitely check it out. Yeah. Okay, so that was some of the inspiration. But then you took yeah. it much, much further. So the signal came out of this monoaux. Yeah. And you didn't stop there. What was the next stage for, for the signal? The next stage is... Um, so the signal is, is beautiful. You create a chord and you can actually hear it and it's a really nice sound but it, it was a bit static for me i was like okay where do we go from here it's it's a bit like um monotonous in a sense mm. so i have a yamaha cs5 synthesizer that has an external in so i thought of grabbing the signal send it into the external in of the synthesizer and then use the filters and lfos to modify the sound so that opens a whole new world for me because mm. i can filter the sound I can give it movements by um, putting um, the LFO engaging the LFO and then of course from there it is really endless I see so the synthesizer is actually not used to play any notes no you didn't use the keyboards no just an external in then you use the controls that you have they're all I believe analog controls yes uh, to modify the sound and, and how did it change how would you describe the sound before and after what, what were you able to do how did the sound change in, in, in timbre? Pretty much, I'm able to EQ it, really. Mm. It is that. It is, um, I'm applying a filter to it, and it allows me to 
to bring the sound, you know, more to the back or mm. bring yeah. it more to the front in a way. Okay. So it allows it to interact with other elements in a more dynamic way. I see. I see. And if I remember correctly, you also played additional elements in addition to, to the synthesized uh, console, no input sound. Like, I think there was a drum beat. Yes. Is that right? Where was that coming from? I had a Roland TR8. Um, and that's just a drum machine. And at what stage did you blend these signals together? Were they arriving baked together at the synthesizer stage or were mm -hmm. they uh, summed later? So actually, it's going through a couple more things. It doesn't end uh -huh. at, the, at the synth. Okay, okay. So, so I was just getting ahead of myself. Okay, just do you take over, please? What's the next stage after the synthesizer? Perfect. After after the synthesizer, the output goes towards um, a DI, and then on the DI, I have um, you know the balance XLR output, and that goes onto my interface. So that's we I, I call that the dry sound because yeah, it is filtered, acute, mm. but it doesn't have any you know reverbs or anything. Okay, so uh, back to the synthesizer. So it came out, you, then you split it and you got the unprocessed version into back into your computer. Yeah. You had con software control over I mean, it, it is audio interface. Yeah. It is processed by the synthesizer. So it's yes. filtered EQ yes. and mm -hmm. that is what I call my dry signal. But mm -hmm. then the other um the other end of the signal that I split goes into the Space Echo RE501. That's a Roland unit? That's yes. a tape loop uh, machine? You know? Yes. Okay. Exactly. Uh, old school analog tape echo. Okay, so what did you do with that? So there, what I do is I, I engage the reverb and the delay and the chorus. So it, mm. it allows me to, to give a sense of spatiality to this sound, you know, and to put it somehow in, in space. And also it allows me to, to change chords and the change not to be too abrupt. But it kind of glues mm, everything nice. together in my yeah, yeah. the way I think. But it doesn't end there. Okay. Because the space echo output goes to my guitar pedals, um, which I have uh, Blues Driver Distortion, a Diamond Vibrato, and 80s um, Small Stone, Electroharmonics Phaser. And I also have another reverb just because it's there. Uh, the, wow. the Holy Grail, yeah from Electromonics, and then I have um, Carbon Copy Delay by MXR. Okay. Yes. That's a lot of effects. I hope you didn't use all of them at the same time. Slightly. You did? Okay. <laughs> wow, you took it to town. Cool. Yeah, yeah all right. Um, explain what a difference that made in sound. So when it came out on the other end, well, what had changed? So pretty much I was able to separate a dry signal from a wet signal. But not only that, mm, I, I, I could choose what kind of aesthetic I wanted on my wet signal. I wanted, If I wanted the chorus from the RE501, yeah. I had it. If I wanted to create um, you know, feedback on the RE501, I could do it. Mm. But I could also create feedback on my Carbon Copy MXR delay pedal, which I love the feedback it creates. And then engaging the phaser would allow me, you know, to create different kind of a slow modulation or a fast modulation. Mm. So it just allowed me to have one plain sound and show it to people in a thousand different ways. I see. So that would be a heavily affected sound. But 
I remember that just a couple of steps before you said you split it and one dryer fade went into your computer and we're now following the affected path. Yes? Yeah. So you have now two parallel versions of it? Yes. Okay, keep going. Yeah, I think I got it. Okay, so that's um, the synth path would be that one. Would be yeah. a dry signal that's acute where I, I can filter it. And then there's the wet signal where I have, you know, a lot of choices mm -hmm. uh, to modify that sound. So that's that's what the synth is. And that's how I make it, you know, dynamic and changing constantly so people don't get, you know, it's not a static sound. I see. How do you blend between the two parallel streams? Um, how do I blend them? So that happens in virtual reality. Okay, wow. Okay, we haven't even gone there yet because no. that big becomes the next part. Exactly. So, so far we've had, you know, the no input mixer synthesizer. Yes. Then we had the synthesizer that was used as a filter unit. Yeah. Then you split it, then you put it through de tape delays and then through an entire chain of effect pedals. Yes. That was just summed up so far. Please keep yeah. going. So, and that's not complex enough. You took it to the next level. What's the next level? Well, there's still more on the level before because we have the drum machine. Oh, okay, okay. So there's even more. So we have the yeah. drum machine. I'll be fast on this one. Okay, please keep going. Yeah. Um, so the drum machine is just a TR8, which um, goes is connected to an analog echo. It's a Roland DC20. And this analog echo, again, it allows me to, you know, change the aesthetic of the of the the drum drum beat i usually use it just to create uh feedback also so i just drive it and then this feedback um, happens and then i i bring it back and it's just a way again to make the drums more dynamic and not like constantly doing the same because i'm i'm busy doing all the virtual reality stuff so i need a way to quickly you know, change sounds and then bring them back to where they are, if if that explains itself. I see. Okay. Yeah. Do you understand? Yes. Yes, I think I'm getting my head around it. I'm not entirely sure yet how all these different signals meet up and come back together. But yeah. I think you're heading this way, aren't you? I am. So wow. they all meet on my Windows computer. So it's a two-computer setup, right? One computer has Pro Tools, which creates the feedback. But now where everything gets recorded, which would be the tape tape machine, is on a Windows computer where I have the virtual reality software. So all of that goes into a Scarlett um, 6i6 interface. And how many different inputs were you using for that uh, interface? Four different, uh, sorry. Yes, four different inputs. Just so I wrap my head around it, can you just name all of them again? Just to I had the dry synth. Yep. I had the wet synth. Yep. I had the drum machine. Yes. And then there's another input, which is a microphone on the piano in the live room. Okay. So up to this point, all of this was basically set up in the control room. Yes. Okay. And then another input from the live room that, that was an, a microphone aiming at a mini grand piano. Got it. I exactly. see. So this is okay. where the Neve synth ends mm -hmm. and the simulated environments begin. And that now closes the the circle to where we started when you introduced the simulated environment. Now we're entering this area. Exactly. Open the door, show us what's in there. Okay, so this is um, a project where I, I explore technology pretty much. Yeah. 
And I wanted to see how the NIV synthesizer interacted with, you know, other elements, other technologies. So I was, I was thinking how interesting it would be to meet this um, old, not old, the Custom 75 is, is, is newish um, console, but it's old technology in a way. It's analog. Yes. And meeting it with the most advanced, groundbreaking uh, technology of virtual reality. So I wanted a way to manipulate sound in space. And all the options I kept coming across allowed me to do it to an extent, but I had to use the mouse on my computer to do it. And I thought that was kind of um, restricting me creatively in my performance until I came across DRVR, which is a German software company that creates these um, spatial plugins but they have one that's called Spatial Connect that allows you to put a virtual reality headset and actually see a world where you can see sound and move it with your own hands. Wow. Yes. Wow. So by see and move is that like, I, I just imagine myself, yeah. you know, taking the mouse on my computer and yeah. click on a folder and move it from left to right in, uh, on, on the desktop into another folder. Is, is this how, what I need to imagine here? Same, same, but just imagine you have a virtual reality headset on mm. so you can see anything of your reality. You're just in this yeah. um, crazy world. It's all pretty much gray, yeah. but it allows you um, to see the sound sources. Objects. Objects. An and object that says drums, another one that exactly. says uh, synthesizer. Yeah, got it. Exactly. Yeah. And you can point at them and click with your hand controls. Yeah. And then move it in space and determine if you want it, you know, closer to you, further away from you. That's not something I can do with the mouse on my desktop. So, you know, exactly. you can do left-right motion. Yeah. And if I understand correctly, that would actually lead to a left-right panning in what you hear. Is that right? If you move, yes. let's say, the drums from left to right. Yeah. But you can also move them closer and further away. So like in a three-dimensional space. Is that correct? Exactly. Wow. So, and how does that practically work? You've got these virtual reality glasses on. That's where you see it. Yes. And how do you now grab uh, an item and move it? An object, I believe you called it. How do you how do you do that? What what device do you use for that? Exactly. So you have two um, handsets also that control where your ha how your hands move. Mm -hmm. And then in virtual reality, you can see them, and they are um, always pointing forward, right? So. As you move it and you aim to the sound source, you can click one of the buttons and then it's kind of you're grabbing the sound. Mm. And with the joystick, you can bring it closer to you or further away from you, or you can just move it left to right. And that will all that information will translate into your headphones. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's starting to, you know, all connect and make sense. Um, Tell me about the process of getting there. Is this a pre-existing technology where you just download a piece of software, click the button, and everything worked? No, no, far no. from it. Yeah. So Very how, how do you how it. do you connect these worlds? Tell me more about that. Well, I I emailed DRVR and I I asked if uh, you know they would be happy to help me create this project, and they they said yes. So they sent me all the the software for free, which I'm really grateful for. Big and shout out. Let's, yes. let's add a link to the show notes as well. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Definitely add a tag. Cool. Yeah. And to be honest, 
their support team was the best support team I ever dealt with. They oh, were great. so helpful. Wow. Every time I came across an, an answer, they would um, answer to me straight away with, um, you know, options. They were just fantastic. It was a pleasure to go through so many issues, you know, because of my, um, this is new technology and having a support team supporting mm. you. Okay. So then, um, software-wise, I had, this software is only available for Windows computers and I'm not a Windows computers user. So I came across a lot of um, issues when installing the software um, just because of uh, I'm out of practice on Windows and it mm. requires for a lot of, you know, processes to be done for the software to to work. And yeah, I had to install the DRVR Pro, which is a plugin that you put on the channels on your door. And then I had to install Spatial Connect, which is the bridge between your door and your headset. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. So you had to make quite a few different pieces of software work together in harmony. Yes. Yes, I see. Well, that would be challenging. Okay, so, and while you were doing all of this, you were using headphones, I believe? Is yes. that correct? Yeah. And you could hear what you were doing moving signals in space. So in other words, you were pretty much like a conductor. Yes. Grabbing elements, moving them around, and you could hear via headphones in real time what happened. So you were do performing like a dance, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's amazing. That's amazing. But it didn't end here. It didn't end there. It didn't end there at all. No. So then you prepared the entire live room for some kind of an uh, walkthrough experience. So there were yeah. people coming through, experiencing what you were doing. Can you describe from an audience member's point of view what would their walkthrough be? What would they see at what stage? And how did they experience that? Yes. So I wanted the experience to be like telling a story. I wanted um, the pathway as you walk to be revealing parts of the other elements of the exhibition, but not fully. So you, it created kind of a curiosity on you. Yep. So as you walk in, uh, the first thing that was showcasing was uh, the documentary uh, about how I uh, created the new synthesizer, which was shot by Jacob Drews, which is an amazing filmmaker. So that was the first stage. They could grab their sorry, they could grab their headphones and listen to the whole documentary, which is you know five minutes documentary. After that, they could see there was a, a mini grand piano, and there were the headphones on the side of the piano. So. These were, were wireless headphones. Wireless headphones, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So you could you needed to put the headphones on and you didn't really you weren't aware yet of the virtual reality aspect of it. There was just a piano and it represents kind of you know the Neve synthesizer in a way because it's analog and is the, the roots of, of sound source. So they're asked to play any of the white keys on the piano, and as they play, I'm in the other room seeing the signal and I grab it and I move it in space so suddenly they're playing the piano but suddenly the piano is behind them suddenly it's in front of them suddenly it's on yeah, the left right. on the right which creates kind of um, a confusion and I, I would have loved to see their faces you know talking with each other and not understanding what's happening then from there they move into the next stage which is a projection of what I actually see on my virtual reality headset so there they're looking at what I see, and at the same time, they can see the piano perform. So there is where I feel like they 
start to understand what's happening. They understand there's someone manipulating the sound in space and it is connected to um, whatever the piano player is doing. And they understand that this way they're part of the, of the exhibition, right? They're both audience and performers, which makes it really special. And then from there, you would move on to the next stage, which is um, in front of the control room where there's a big, really big uh, window where you can actually see me performing, see where, you know, these two worlds meet, which is in the performance. Wow. Okay, that's quite a journey. It that's is. quite a journey. You know, I, I did this walk and the entire live room was pretty dark. Yeah. You had some very tasteful lighting and it was yeah. all separated. Uh, you used baffles yes. to literally create a walk-through path through a big uh, live room through different stages. And it was actually quite an experience, I have to admit. Thank it you. was um, quite impressive. Wow. And, okay, so my understanding is that there was also a video videographer capturing what you were doing and you are taking this now into yet another... What is that going to be? To describe what... what What you I wanted to do with, to, with what the video. Well, I wanted uh, to yeah. create, continue this um, exploration of the new synthesizer in different, mm. you know, environments. So the first documentary is about how it was created. Mm. This now I'm gonna create this part two of the documentary where it is um, explaining how this exhibition worked and how the new synthesizer um, related and worked with virtual reality. So the meeting of these two technologies. And it is a lot about also the audience and the audience role in discovering what is happening. Mm. I think that's that's really a drive. I mean, making the story, right? And the, the experience more and more interesting. Yeah. Wow. This is probably the most complex uh, student project that I've ever seen, in all honesty. Um, technically, definitely a huge, huge challenge. And I really admire how you managed to, to perform creatively at the end of it. So yeah. you got out of that technical mindset and trans transformed back into a creative um, yeah, a musician. Yeah. Definitely musician because you were making music mm -hmm. in a very unconventional way. Yeah. So um, that's that's really interesting. I, I found that mind-blowing. Thank you. So well, well done. Good on you. Thank you very much. Um, look, I'm really curious to see what the future brings for you. You know, these kind of ideas, you know, that's going to open doors uh, somewhere and people will notice, I'm, I'm sure. So I'm, I'm curious to so. see what your future path will bring. But keep up this curiosity. That's really good. That's really good. You know, that's how progress is made, I guess. Exactly. Breaking old conventions and doing things that were not meant to be done. So that's that's really inventive. That's it. Wow. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing. Thank I you for having me. Wish you all the best for your for your path ahead. Thank mm. you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I Good. hope um it came across clear. It's very hard to to grab it with words. I feel like I know, I know. But uh, I think we did a pretty good job trying to decipher it all and break into parts. Mm? 100%. Okay. Good. Thanks for your time, Marcus. I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me.
Wow, this might have been the most technical episode we've done so far. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, for me, it was absolutely amazing. Um, crazy stuff. So I'd like to encourage all listeners to be creative and don't take by the book technology workflows as a given. It is sometimes meant to be misused and misuse can lead to amazing uh, new discoveries. Many of the things we do today are actually coming from uh, places of misuse, like guitar distortion, which was a big, big no-no back then, or playing an open hi-hat uh, was frowned upon as a can't-do playing technique. Who knows what happens next? Um, so the cross-section between technology and creativity is, is a really exciting place for me. So explore this and see what you can come up with. There's definitely a lot of amazing things to, to be discovered and uh, Marcos just showed us in an amazing example how this can be done. So if you're not a technical-minded person, every once in a while you may need some help with technical stuff. So if you're ever stuck uh, with your production and you struggle to get it to the finish line, uh, please reach out to me via mixartist.com.au. I love helping musicians achieving their creative goals and guiding their music projects to the finish line. And I'd love to, to hear from you. Check it out, uh, mixartist.com.au. I would also really appreciate if you could please hit the subscribe button in your podcast application. And uh, pretty close to the subscribe button, you will also find um, the rating button. So a five-star review would really mean the world to me. Thank you so much. This is all for today. I'm looking forward to speaking to you again next week. Bye for now.